0: Well, good evening. This evening we'll be finishing up our series of studies in the book of Esther, where we have been for the last couple of weeks. I always enjoy these books, uh, especially the books that pertain to the time period in history where the Jews are in the Persian Empire or under the occupation of the Persian Empire. Uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, and of course Esther— I find that fascinating because it's a time period in history that we know a lot about, actually. There's a lot recorded for us about the Persian Empire, more so perhaps in the Babylonian Empire, although there's a lot about that as well. Uh, so we know a lot about the history surrounding the Jews as they were in this place in the area of what the, was called Susa. as actually parts of Babylon that were taken over by the Persians, the Medo-Persians, and thus became part of the Persian Empire. But as we find ourselves this evening, we'll remember that last week we talked about the fact that they, the Jews, had reached a place where they, thanks to Mordecai and Esther, had come up with Xerxes' authority. They had come up with a way to deal with the enemies that wanted to destroy them. You'll remember Haman had issued a decree, which could not be revoked, that said the enemies of the Jews could plunder them on the 13th of the 12th month of Adar. And, of course, the counter to that was this new edict that Mordecai issued in the name of King Xerxes. Uh, And he issued it, saying on that same day, the Jews would be able to defend themselves And it's important to recognize they were given the right to defend themselves, not to attack their enemies, but to defend themselves from the enemies that attacked them. So what we're about to read is that they successfully defended themselves against their enemies, but if their enemies had just backed down and walked away, there would have been no reason for them to defend themselves. So keep that in mind as we go through this evening's account. (coughs) So, let's open in a word of prayer. We'll get right into it, starting in Chapter 9 of the book of Esther. Chapter 10 is a very small chapter, so we'll look at chapters 9 and 10. And let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As always, we desire to hear from you. We desire to understand your word and apply it to our hearts, and we can't do that work without the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We cannot receive from your word or understand what it means or how to apply it to our hearts unless you give us your Holy Spirit the ability to not only interpret and understand, but obey your word. May you encourage us practically and also speak to our hearts from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Xerxes goes about helping the Jews to destroy their enemies. And one of the things that's great about this second edict is it it, it waits. It, It sits back and says, okay, whoever decides on this particular day To take advantage of the first edict of Haman, the son of Hamadapha, the Agagite, and attack the Jews is going to be dealt with. So really, they know who their enemies are. The enemies of the Jews are those that actually come out and attack them. It makes it very easy for them to identify their enemies and defeat them. And when you think about it, one of the dangerous things about having enemies is you sometimes don't know who they are. In our nation today, There are a lot of people in our country, and some have come in recently, and some have actually been here a while. But when you realize that there are enemies of our nation, in our nation, it's sort of unsettling. But when you are able to identify those enemies and deal with them properly, it makes us all a whole lot safer. So we see this evening that is the case. In fact, let's read verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read where we see the Jews throughout Persia actually destroyed their enemies. Chapter 9, the book of Esther, verse 1. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of, of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities, were afraid of them. That is, they were afraid of the Jews. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. And so the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshadatha, Dalphon, Asaphtha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vaisantha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, legally, they could have plundered their enemies. That is, seize all of their property, seize all of their wealth for themselves. The edict gave them that right, but they did not do that for a reason. And we'll get to that in a minute. God did not want them to do that. First of all, they were charged at one point to destroy the Amalekites, but they weren't charged to take what they had. In fact, Saul had gotten in trouble for doing that very thing. So they were obeying God by doing it in that way. So the Jews were to destroy and plunder their enemies. On this day, even though their enemies had hoped to overpower them, Mordecai's edict enabled them to turn the tables on those that hated them. You see this throughout Jewish history, how even going back to perhaps 1967, maybe even sooner than that, but I'll just think of uh, 19. Sixty-seven was the six-day war. They called it the six-day war. And I have it on good authority from someone who's a good friend of mine who was there when these things happened and actually was serving in the uh, the Egyptian army that it wasn't really a six-day war. It was a six-hour war. It was actually over very quickly. When the enemies of Israel attacked, which would have been Uh, Nasser's forces, I believe it was Syria, Egypt, and a number of the Palestinians. And when they attacked, they actually ended up losing not only the war, brief war that it was, but lots and lots of territory. They had actually hoped to destroy Israel. Instead, all they effectively did was grant Israel even more territory. And, you know, that doesn't seem right, right? Your enemies, you're surrounded by your enemies. They attack you. And now you end up with even more land. The territories like what they call the West Bank, which is East Jerusalem and the areas east of Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights and the Gaza, Uh, they even had control of the Sinai at one point, which was huge. They gave it back for peace. They gave it back. It wasn't part of Israel, but they gave it back to Egypt and made peace with Egypt, which exists till this day. But the amazing thing is when Israel first became a nation on May 14, 1948, they had a very small amount of territory. They have since expanded to all of these additional territories. Each and every time they have been attacked, they've gained more territory. So how does that happen and why? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that these are God's chosen people. Even though they don't acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, they are still God's chosen people, And God has a way of protecting his people. Amen? And so we've seen it in our lifetime, but we see it also in the history of the Jews in Persia. The Jews gathered in all the king's provinces to attack those that sought their destruction. And rather than being destroyed, they destroyed their enemies. And no one could stand against them because the peoples throughout Persia were afraid of them. Because Mordecai, who was a Jew, was now essentially the prime minister all of the nobles and officials helped the Jews because they feared Mordecai. They didn't want to be in trouble with this new ruler, so they assisted the Jews. And Xerxes had given, Haman, uh, H- excuse me, had given Haman's position to Mordecai, and that we saw in our previous studies. Now, he had already been given full authority to issue edicts in the name of the king We know from last week he was dressed as prime minister of Persia, second in rank to Xerxes, as we'll see when we get to chapter 10, verse 3. He had become more and more powerful throughout Persia since issuing his edict. Now, one of the things I've noticed in Jewish history, and especially as it relates to the captivity, but even going back to the time of Joseph, God often placed people, prophets, leaders, patriarchs, in the Courts of these pagan kings. Now you think about Joseph. Joseph became second ruler in Egypt under Pharaoh, which preserved not only the Egyptians but all of the Jews. And you think about Daniel, another great example. Daniel became not only a wise man but a magi, but he ultimately became essentially the prime minister of both Babylon. At one point, he was very high up in, in the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, and essentially, even after having been out of power, he was elevated to the position of prime minister. And then, of course, Babylon fell to the meat of Persians. And shortly after that, he was elevated to the position of chief administrator or essentially prime minister. Very old at that point. So, And that was when he was in the lion's den. And then you have Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, a very high official in the Persian empire. And of course, you have Mordecai as an example here. Also very high up, extremely high up, in the Persian government. What does that tell us? That God preserves his people by placing the right people in government. It doesn't make them perfect people. It doesn't make them the kind of people that we can always agree with or even admire. But God is the one, according to his word, that places people in authority. Even wicked kings are there by God's allowance and decree. Even the wicked but we do know that when God wants to place men and women in positions of authority and power to preserve his people, he doesn't need us to make it happen. Oh, we vote. You know, We know there, there's a lot of suspicion about voting in our nation right now. There's not a lot of credibility in the voting in our nation right now for a lot of reasons. Some of the recent legislation leaves a lot of room for cheating, but there's always been cheating. And no one seems to acknowledge this. We don't know why, but they don't want to lose that control over the vote. God forbid the people actually elect the people that maybe they don't want, right? But we live in a nation where, thankfully, that can still happen, where people get elected to power who we can describe as people whose God's hands are upon them. It's happened before. I pray it'll happen soon. I really do. But that's the thing to remember, that God places his hands on people, and he can put someone like a Daniel or a Joseph or a Nehemiah or a Mordecai in a position of power to preserve his people in the midst of a pagan world empire. So don't lose hope for our nation and our culture and our world. I get a little annoyed when people throw up their hands and essentially say all is lost. I like to call them the chicken little, you know, chicken little Christians, or the sky is falling every five minutes. Listen, God is in control. Amen? So that's what we see here, clearly, clearly. And the Jews essentially destroyed their enemies in Susa on this 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, which was supposed to be a horrific day when they would be destroyed. It ended up being a day of celebration as they destroyed their enemies. They killed 500 men in the citadel. We learned that. These would have been 500 men that attacked them. Notice it doesn't say women and children. Okay? It was men that armed themselves and tried to destroy the Jews. And they killed the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Haman was an Amalekite. We talked about this. I'll, I'll review it a little bit. One of Israel's greatest enemies throughout their history. They, they had a death sentence from God upon them, which explains why an Amalekite like Haman would want to kill all the Jews because he grew up and his people were under a death sentence to be killed by the Jews. The Lord had declared their destruction, an unending war for generations in Exodus chapter 17. By God's word, they were supposed to be destroyed according to God's judgment. They were a wicked group of people. I've described them before. They were very much human traffickers, terrorists. They would do a lot of evil to the people of Israel and other peoples as well. But the Lord had commanded... Israel to destroy them, and unfortunately many times Israel wasn't obedient to God, and so the Amalekites had defeated Israel when they were disobedient in the wilderness. And they had oppressed Israel in the promised land when they became tolerant and complacent of sin. God used them to judge his people to bring them back to himself. But then the Lord commanded Saul to completely destroy this group of people in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the king of the Amalekites was Agag, and that's why they say Haman was an Ag- Agagite. He was descended, he's a prince, essentially descended from the royal line of Amalek. So Saul needed to just simply obey God and wipe them all out, but he didn't. He held on to the plunder for his own enrichment. He left Agag and his sons, or at least some of them, alive so that he could be paid a ransom. You understand? You would leave the nobility and the rich people alive when you conquered a land because you wanted them to buy their freedom. Where did the money go? In his pocket. It was lucrative. People will pay all kinds of money to spare their lives, right? So that's what he was doing. But he rejected God, and Saul was rejected by God as Israel's king, simply for disobeying this command. So Samuel the prophet shows up, You can't see very well, but he kills King Agag, decapitates him essentially. But the fact that Haman still existed as an Agagite proves that Saul disobeyed God and left some of the descendants of Agag alive. That's the point. But Haman would have never existed as a human being had Saul obeyed God's command. So now, here we go. It's time to pay the piper. For sins that a king in the past had committed, the Jews almost were completely destroyed by this man with genocidal ambitions. But God intervened because, as we've said, God is in control. And though Saul was later rebuked by Samuel's spirit and sentenced to death for his rebellion, Saul was actually put to death by an Amalekite. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But the Jews had finally obeyed God's command to completely destroy the Amalekites. And as far as we can tell, they're pretty much dealt with at this point. There, there won't be any more of the royal line because they killed Haman. He was hung on the gallows by the Persians. And his sons, as we see, were put to death. So God's command has finally been followed and obeyed. And blessings can come to us when we finally obey God's commands. But again, they did not seize the property of their enemies. And this was in obedience to the word of God, because look what happened to Saul. He took the property of the Amalekites, and he was rejected by God. So they didn't want anything from these people. They just wanted their freedom. They just wanted their safety. They wanted to be protected from these people who wanted to destroy them. And so they were. And then we read in verses 11 through 17, it goes on to tell us, The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa, was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? I mean, you can only imagine, right? Now what is your petition? Interesting, he says this again. It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now they were already dead; they just were going to hang their bodies on the gallows, pretty much to send a message. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews uh, hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men. I don't even understand why these 300 guys showed up. It's really hard for me to understand. That's got to be a lot of hate. Would you agree? To know that you're you're probably going to be destroyed for this, right? To know that 500 died the day before and still you show up ready to destroy the Jews. Kind of strange. But that's what hate will do to you. If you don't believe that, look at the situation in the Middle East today. There could be peace in the Middle East. But there's too much hate, even on both sides. And hate does awful things to people's minds and hearts, doesn't it? So notice notice it says, they put to death in Susa 300 men, but again, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, now we learn what was happening, like the king was thinking, or what what must be happening in the rest of the realm. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed in total, they killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So out in the country, they had one day where they defended themselves. 75,000 of their enemies put to death. Again, that's a huge number. It's over a vast realm. But still that there were that many people that hated the Jews so much that they would risk their lives to attack them and be destroyed. They didn't stand a chance. And still that hate drove them to try to kill the Jews. When you look at the history of Israel, it's not hard to imagine that over and over again there are groups of people, individuals, leaders, this is their modus operandi. They want to destroy Jews. I've shared this with you before. We talked about it on a Sunday. Anti-Semitism, which is a word that simply means to hate people from the Middle East, but specifically geared towards the Jews, anti-Semitism is a satanic way of thinking. And the devil inspires people to hate all types of people, but I really have to say it. Nobody's more hated in the world over the centuries, and even today, than the Jewish people. Have you ever noticed how everyone except America and the UN hates the Jews? They hate Israel. They're always voting against them. They're always trying to accuse them of war crimes simply for defending themselves, oftentimes. I'm not saying they're perfect, But this is a group of people who simply want peace, and they're surrounded by people who want to destroy them. And no matter how hard they try, those peoples cannot destroy Israel. And Israel only thrives every time they're attacked. So I see in that the devil's hatred of Israel and God's protection of Israel. Nothing else makes any sense. Why hate a group of people that live in a very small portion of land with no Natural resources like in the other nations that surround them, the oil and the gas, there's some but nothing like, let's say, in Iraq or, or uh, the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia. They live on a piece of land roughly the size of New Jersey. And because of that, people blow themselves up, kill school children, blow up buses in Tel Aviv. They'll do anything, rain down rockets on them. Stop and think about, is it, is, it, is it perhaps satanically inspired? Now listen, I'm not taking, I'm going to say there's good people who are on both sides, and perhaps people on both sides that are not so good. But at the end of the day, why is it that the world hates Israel so much? The answer to me is very clear. It's anti-Semitism, it's satanically inspired. And then the other question you ask is, why is it that Israel still exists as a people? Why are the Jews still in existence? Because God protects them. We'll talk more about this on Sundays in our studies in the book of Revelation. But it becomes very clear to me what's going on. So the Jews and Susa destroyed their enemies for an additional day. They got an additional day in the capital. Xerxes was told that the Jews had killed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. And Xerxes informed Esther, he's openly wondering, well, 500 died in the city. If they killed 500, how many in the rest of the Persian Empire? But Xerxes asked Esther what more she wanted, assured her that he would grant her request. He's on the side of Mordecai and Esther. He certainly is willing to do whatever he can. But remember this for a minute. Whose fault, ultimately, was it that the first edict was issued? Xerxes. It was Haman who issued the edict, but in the king's name, because the king gave him that authority and didn't ask any questions when he said he wanted to issue an edict to destroy a group of people Xerxes just sort of turned a blind eye to it, so he's kind of culpable. He's he's responsible, certainly ultimately responsible for this. So the fact that he's so willing to help the Jews shows that he recognizes this is really kind of his fault that it happened at all. So Esther asked Xerxes to allow the Jews in Susa to extend that edict an additional day, which they were able to do very quickly because they live right there in the capital. They wanted to destroy and plunder their enemies the next day, and they also wanted to hang those bodies of Haman's sons on the gallows. There was certainly a quite a, a lot of hatred towards Haman, even though he didn't succeed. He tried, literally tried, to destroy the Jewish people, not unlike a Hitler. When you talk to the Jews today, Haman is in that category. You know, Adolf Hitler, Haman, others who literally would have been very happy if all the Jews died and Jews didn't exist anymore, which again is a very satanic way of thinking. So Xerxes gave Esther and Mordecai the authority to issue an order, and they did. And as we saw, the Jews destroyed more of their enemies the next day, hanged those bodies on the gallows of Haman's sons, killed 300 men, and again did not seize any property. So the Jews had destroyed their enemies throughout Persia on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. All of the areas outside the capital, in one day, killed 75,000 men. Again, men, because this was a a conflict. This was like a, a sanctioned war, almost. The enemies were sanctioned and given the legal right to attack the Jews, but the Jews were given the legal right to defend themselves. Why is it that the Jews won? Well, they had the support of Persia. They had the support of Mordecai. They had the support of the people, but they had God's support. And that's why. So when you ask yourself the question, why does Israel seem to always win these conflicts, that should be your answer. God is with them. God is with them. And God is with us. Amen? So they didn't seize the property either, but then they rested and they celebrated on what was the 14th of the 12th month of Adar. And the purpose of this book, and even especially these chapters here, is to explain a festival, which we're going to talk about in the next section here festival that is going to be celebrated this year on Monday at sundown on March 6th, which is just a week or two away. So it's interesting. We're finishing up this study right before the festival of Purim, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, actually will be celebrated by the Jews. So when you hear about it, or if you hear about it, uh, or if you're curious about it, reading this book will tell you everything you need to know about the Jewish festival called Purim which again will be celebrated on Monday, March 6th at sundown. So let's look a little deeper here at this feast and why it was established and how it was established. In verses 18 through 32, the Jews throughout Persia, they celebrated the destruction of their enemies, and then they made it a holiday. Here's what we see. In verse 18, the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested, obviously, And they made it a day of feasting and joy. But that is why the rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. It's a great feast, a great time of celebration. Now, we read in verse 20 that Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days, of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Almost kind of like Christmas in a way, you know, the way we celebrate Christmas, at least commercially. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the purr, that is, the lot. We think of it as a die, or perhaps a set of dice. For their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on its own head. Back on his own head. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows, which, of course, they were. Therefore, in verse 26, these days were called Purim from the word poor. Poor. So Purim has as its root the word for a, a, a dice or a die, uh, the lot it was called in ancient times. So Purim, that's where we get the name. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to, him, to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abahel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to the times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Now what I find interesting is I just mentioned that Purim is about to be celebrated after so many, many years, right? Uh looking at the chronology here, uh, it actually goes back to, let's see, 474 BC. So add that to 2,000 years. It's like roughly 2,500 years. And all this time, the Jews have been celebrating this Feast of Purim, showing that God's word is faithful and showing that not only is it true but, and faithful, but that the Jews continue to obey God's word, including the book of Esther. Now, of course, they don't accept as a people. They don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. But they do, if they're faithful in following the law, they do celebrate Purim. <clears throat> so in 474 BC, all of this takes place. So it's been many, many years that the Jews have been celebrating this holiday. But they celebrated the destruction of their enemies. And I think anyone would agree Every culture pretty much celebrates the destruction of their enemies. We celebrate July 4th as a declaration of independence from, at that time, it was the British Empire. But, you know, there was a point at which that war was won. And there's, there have been times throughout our nation's history, victory over Europe, victory over Japan, uh, the end of the First World War, there are, Armistice Day, I believe it's called, there, there are days in our nation's history, that we look back and we say, well, this was a day of great victory. This was a day when we can rejoice that we continue to be victorious as a people. That's very normal, but this is a little strange because they were really just defending themselves. And so many times, uh, wars are started for different reasons. This was really the result of a genocidal ambition on the part of one man, obviously supported by quite a few other people, You have to agree because 75,000 were killed uh, attacking the Jews in the provinces and another 800 in the city. So there were lots of people that hated them. Let's put it that way. So the Jews in Susa, as I said, they had destroyed their enemies. With that additional day, they had plundered their enemies and celebrated on the 15th while the rural Jews celebrated on the 14th. And Mordecai recorded all of these events. It's what we've been reading. And all of the events contained in the book of Esther are given to us because Mordecai recorded the events. He established, he and Esther established this Feast of Purim. And it is quite possible that he also wrote this entire narrative. We know he recorded the events. Was he the author of the book of Esther? We don't know. Perhaps not. He certainly could have been. Perhaps not. But this history of the Jews, which is a wonderful book to study, because it's, it really is a, a dramatic recording of, of history. Uh, in and of itself, it, it's a great account. Uh, it has its own intro and ending, and it's really not just written as history. It really is a dramatic representation of, of the history of the Jews, but given in a story format. So the information was recorded by Mordecai, but who actually wrote the narrative, We're not exactly sure. Anyway, he established an annual celebration throughout Persia on these days, the 14th and the 15th of the 12th month of Adar. The Jews were encouraged to celebrate their deliverance from Haman each year. I want you to think about something that God has delivered you from. For me, I I, I celebrate every day pretty much that God delivered me at a very young age and very early in my walk from alcohol. Uh, I was just talking to somebody and encouraging somebody who's struggling in that area. And uh, I I wrote to them, was just kind of texting back and forth. And I said, uh, you know, 37 years ago, the Lord encouraged me and delivered me from that sin and problem and addiction in my life. And I know not everyone is delivered as quickly and as radically, but he he took that out of my life. And so I, I don't necessarily celebrate every year. I celebrate every day every time I realize I don't even desire it, every time I realize and I talk to somebody who's caught in that sin, in that addiction, that God delivered me from that, I celebrate. I do. Oh, I wish he had delivered me from every sin so easily and so quickly. But certainly that sin in my life was taken out of my life in a very miraculous way. So think about something God has delivered you from. Recently, I can say that God has delivered me from uh, not being able to control my uh, temper. He delivered me from that. So I'm actually, I've been doing things in my life to to cultivate peace of mind and tranquility. And uh, it has really worked. I'm able to, you know, I still get angry. But when I do, I I find that I have control or self-control over my emotions enough not to give myself over to them. So I celebrate those things, and there are many other areas of victory and other areas of struggle in my life, but I celebrate those areas of deliverance in my life, and I think it's important that each and every one of us do as well. Whatever it is you're struggling with or have struggled with, when you get a victory, and by the way, one of the things I like to tell people, people can go like a year or two without giving themselves over to drugs or alcohol, and then they have a moment of failure because it sometimes happens. And they feel like the last year or two was lost, like they got to start all over again. But that's not entirely true. You went a whole year or two without it. Okay, you fell. Get back up again. Those two years aren't gone. They're not just discarded. That was something, and you can do it again. So I just want to encourage you in that way. Think about what God has delivered you from recently or is delivering you from and celebrate that truth. The Jews were to express their joy by feasting and giving presents to each other and to the poor, And the Jews agreed to celebrate this feast, the Feast of Purim, just as Mordecai had requested. So the Feast of Purim celebrates all the events contained in the book of Esther. The Jews took it upon themselves to establish this feast, to always celebrate it each year. God God didn't necessarily tell them to do this, by the way. There are feasts in the Bible that are established by God. There are. There there are quite quite a number of them. Uh, I think of, obviously, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of the first fruits, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkoth. Those are feasts that God ordained and established. There are also feasts, if you will, on the new moons, and, you know, they have a Sabbath every week. There are things that God established. There are two holidays that the Jews have that you can argue that God may not have established, but the, the Jewish people established to remember God's deliverance. One is Hanukkah, which, as far as we can tell, Jesus did celebrate, because when we read the Gospels, he did celebrate the feast in winter. The only feast in winter is Hanukkah. And then, of course, Purim. And I'm sure Jesus celebrated, as a Jew, celebrated Purim as well. And just because they're not in the law, and in the case of Hanukkah, it's not even in the Bible— just because they're not in the law doesn't mean these aren't good things. Holidays are okay. You know, one of the things that used to get me a little aggravated, when I first became a Christian, I, I knew that Jehovah Witnesses didn't like to celebrate holidays and birthdays. And I understood that. But there were a lot of Christians who didn't either. And I thought to myself, really? Why? God seems to be interested in us having times of celebration. And the Bible is filled with descriptions of feasts. Some of them are times of mourning, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But some of them are times of feasting, like Purim. So, you know, I think it's important to rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. I think, as Paul talks about, I think it's important that we recognize celebrating is okay. Can I hear an amen? It's not like God's against celebrating. Mourning is okay. Celebrating is okay. And I think this bears out in this text. So Esther and Mordecai established the Feast of Purim, and they did so with the full authority of the king. So Mordecai sent all these letters offering goodwill and assurance. Why goodwill and assurance? Because the people that were left feared the Jews. They feared Mordecai, and he offered goodwill and assurance. Listen, we have nothing against you. We want to live in peace. And Esther issued a decree as well confirming Mordecai's letters. And all of this is recorded in the official historical records and, of course, it has made its way to us in God's word. And then we get to chapter 10. This pretty much closes out the book. <clears throat> in chapter 10, we read that King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire. That means he raised taxes. <laughs> Another thing we're very familiar with. He imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. <clears throat> and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So he was a man that maybe had a questionable start in politics, but he ultimately became a very good leader who worked on the behalf of all people, but especially the Jews. Now, secular history doesn't record the name Mordecai, as far as we can tell, and he was probably known by a different name. And some of those records have certainly been lost. But God has preserved in his word the history of Mordecai, having been made prime minister of Persia. The greatness of Xerxes in Mordecai was recorded, and we have it here. Xerxes, of course, known for his power and his might and his imposing tribute on his people throughout the empire. But Mordecai was known for being given the seat of honor, higher than all the other nobles in the Persian court. And Mordecai the Jew became prime minister of the Persian empire, second in rank to King Xerxes, because God ordained that it would be so. And it came about through a set of circumstances that, when you read it, looked really bad. It looked as if things were getting worse, but actually things were getting better. Did you see that? As we've gone through the study of this book, it looked pretty dark. About halfway through the account, we're thinking, ooh, all is lost. Did it end up that way? No, because God is in control. So the next time you read the newspaper or you watch the news and you think, all is lost. The sky is falling. Remember that God can place a Mordecai in power. And everything can change overnight. Please understand that. Please have hope. God is in control. God can do all things. And pray for our nation. Pray for our culture. This man was honored and respected by his own people, the Jews. And he worked for the good of his people. Spoke up for their welfare. And may the Lord give us a leader like that again. Now, just so you can kind of put this in a frame of reference, we have studied the book of Ezra, we've studied the book of Nehemiah, and now we've studied Esther. To give you an idea how this happened, Xerxes was king, and this whole time period was recorded for us. But the moment of deliverance when Mordecai was made prime minister by Xerxes took place, as I've said, in 474 BC. It was a few years later, in 465 BC, that Xerxes was assassinated. So about, what, nine years later, he was actually assassinated by a commander of the palace guard. That's interesting, because remember, that Mordecai's claim to fame was he prevented the assassination of Xerxes. So it kind of bears out the truth that people were trying to take this guy out. Gee, I wonder if it had anything to do with his imposing taxes and tribute on the people. It usually does. People don't like taxes. Anybody here like taxes? I don't like taxes. I know they're necessary. And I'm thinking about the fact that I have to now do my taxes. I don't enjoy that either. But that led to an assassination. It was successful. And Xerxes led and ruled Persia for 21 years. But he was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes Longomanus, and he ruled Persia for 40 years. So more than likely, I'm guessing he lowered taxes. But that's just something I would venture a guess. Anyway... That took place in 465 B.C. And then in 458 B.C., so what would we say, like eight years after that, Ezra, he led the second return of the Jews back to their homeland in Judea, which we studied some time ago. And then about 14 years after that, in 444 B.C., Artaxerxes Longomanus issued an edict allowing the Jews to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and Nehemiah led the third return of the Jews back to their homeland in Judea. So now you can sort of put that in order. Esther, even though it comes after Nehemiah and Ezra, <coughs> the account actually took place before at least the second half of the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So now perhaps you have a better understanding of the history of the Jews during their time in captivity or living among the Persians. Uh, we know what happens after this. You know, the Jews get resettled through Nehemiah. They reestablish themselves in the land. And then about 400 years go, goes by, During that time, the Greeks rule over them, as Daniel prophesied. The Romans rule over them. Christ is born. And of course, we're more familiar with the New Testament and the Romans, who pretty much everyone knows this, but the Romans were in control of the Middle East when Christ came. And then the Roman Empire fell. And that was many hundred years later. But I like for you to be able to connect the history so you understand these empires, where they fall in. We'll talk more about this in our studies, obviously, in Revelation, because we talk about these world empires. even talked about it just this last Sunday. But may the Lord give us those leaders that work for the good of God's people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do give us leaders that you've laid your hands on and, and anointed and We pray for more, and we especially pray that you would give us a president that honors you. Lord, we we, we pray against the evil rulers of this world and in our nation who don't represent you, who don't honor you, don't live for you, and actually defy you and your word, and promote all manner of evil, and call evil good and good evil. We pray that you would intervene and give us leaders that acknowledge you. You encourage us to pray this way. So we're praying according to your word and according to your will. Lord, And if it takes another two years or whatever, great, but Lord, even sooner than that would be better. May you work on behalf of your people in this nation and throughout the world by giving us leaders that honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.